I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Even I, when I was writing her, was saying, wow, do you really want to say that? And honestly, you know, I felt like she was sitting next to me saying, oh yeah, I'm going to say this. For a large portion of our relatively recent history, science wasn't a welcoming field for women. Despite the many incredible contributions female scientists have made throughout history, pursuing a career in science has often been fraught with difficulties, with women facing a number of societal barriers and sexist ideals. The novel I'm discussing today follows the life of a chemist called Elizabeth Zott. It's the early 1960s and the unconventional heroine of this tale is on a mission to upend the status quo. Lessons in chemistry would have been just as relevant if it was set in the modern day, because even now, according to a UNESCO science report, fewer than 30% of the world's scientific researchers are women. It's no wonder then that the book is already being turned into a television series, and it's not even out until next week. I'm thrilled then to say that my guest today is the book's author, the wonderful Bonnie Garmus. Chapter 1. How Far We've Come. Female activism and feminist movements have made a significant impact on the world we see today. They have been instrumental in shaping a new narrative, one where women have equal rights to follow their passions and their dreams. We've come a long way, but the path ahead is still long and winding. While it's important to keep the fight going, sometimes it pays to reflect on the past, to renew our sense of optimism and to see how far we've come. This is exactly the reason Bonnie set lessons in chemistry in the 50s and 60s, because when you're dealing with the frustrations of day-to-day inequality, sometimes you need reassurances that we've actually made progress. I had been in a meeting one day, and I had just suffered through some just normal, everyday, average sexism. It was such a waste of time. And when I left the meeting, I just thought, you know, are we really still there? Are we really still talking like this to women? Are we really still just assuming that they're not as strong or as intelligent as men or whatever it is. I'm not really sure all the time what these reasons are. I think it's it's primarily cultural. But uh, I, I left that meeting and I went back to my desk and I sat down and I wrote the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry, which just goes to show you what the power of a bad mood can produce. But I said it in the 50s and 60s because I did want to have a chance to look back and say, my God, we actually have made some progress. And when I did that research, I discovered that women back then could not hold a job if they were pregnant. They could not sign their own checks. They were often left off the deed of the house. They had no right to their husband's paycheck. So they were essentially at home in a job that was undervalued. They worked 24 hours a day and they were unpaid. And my mom was one of those people. Now, she would say that she actually loved being at home with children, but she'd been a nurse and she had really always talked about how much she missed her job. And one of the reasons why she missed her job was because at the job she was taken seriously and at home she was not. So that's really, that's why I said it then, in a way to reconfirm that we have made progress, but also as a salute to those women who stayed at home with us kids and ended up raising a generation of feminists. Yes, Elizabeth Elizabeth (laughs) Zott, your your main character is certainly that. Just on her, before before we dive in, let's talk about what she's on the receiving end of. 
for those characters in the book who were not on her side, there are fairly extreme reactions. Some people find her hateable. Some people literally hate her. There is a huge, yeah. a huge amount of opposition. There is almost this incredulity that this woman is daring to stand in front of a, a male authority figure and challenge the status quo. I get a real, and, and it, a lot of it made me deeply uncomfortable, which I'm hopeful is what you were going for. It should have made me uncomfortable, <laughs> but there is a huge amount of hate in the world for Elizabeth Zott, isn't there? I think so. You know, I think the the great thing about her is that she just sees past it. She refuses to accept it. And the other thing I love about her is that she understands that this is a cultural thing, that this isn't really a personal thing, which is why a character like Walter Pine comes into her life. He's a man. He's her boss. He knows that, you know, immediately he's kind of beaten by her. And the thing that I love about Walter is that even though she is ruining his life, he respects her for it. You know, she is a character that I can bring to life who is such a misfit because she just refuses to give in to society. She sees from a scientist's point of view, there is absolutely no logical reason to do that. She does take a very scientific view to everything, which I I really appreciated. So for listeners that haven't yet had the opportunity to get their hands on on your book. At the heart of this story is the character of Elizabeth Zott, who wants more than anything else to be accepted as a scientist and to do scientific work. But for reasons which you will learn as a reader when you you get into the book, um, the world is not really on her side and she faces a huge amount of struggle. She then lands a job that she doesn't particularly want because she doesn't want to be the host of a daytime cookery show. And so... When she reluctantly accepts, she talks about food from the perspective of the chemical structure of of food products and the chemical reaction that is happening in the pan or in in the cook. And what that, for me, means is that she herself becomes a chemical reaction in her audience. She is the catalyst, isn't she, of of so many people. And that, that beat of science that goes all the way through it, every single thing she does, even when she completely rips out her kitchen and redesigns it as a as a laboratory to make <laughs> all manner of wonderful stuff. You know, she is first and foremost a scientist. That's, I think, how she would describe herself. Is that fair? Yeah, that was a theme. I'm so glad that you, that you saw that. That is exactly what I was intending to do. I wanted her to make, to be this living catalyst. In fact, we are all atoms and molecules. We change all the time. We all have the ability to change things. We are all catalysts unto ourselves. But our ability to change things is governed by a lot of archaic rules and ideas and things that, that aren't actually, they have no basis in reality. Elizabeth Zott is so based in reality, it can be painful to interact with her because she just, she almost doesn't get it. She just refuses to, to think about, well, I guess we could do it this way because that's the way it's always been. And she says, no, you know, no, no. <laughs> She's just so logical. So I know I, it was really, it was really fun to write her, but she's, she's flawed. And that's one of the reasons why I think people resonate with her because she isn't just this kind of hard driving. I'm a scientist. You live with it sort of woman. She also has real feelings and she, she has to live with the consequences of her behavior and her mistakes. And um, it's, you know, it's difficult for her. Perhaps the greatest compliment I can pay her as a character is that 
of all the people who have asked me who would be your dream guest on this show, I would almost certainly never say Elizabeth Zoll. I would be very intimidated by the thought of interviewing her <laughs> about her life because she's very, very authentically drawn in your book. She doesn't do things that make you think, hang on, that's a bit of a misstep. I don't really feel that she would do that. She's entirely authentic. And I think that I would get a very, very hard hour of my life trying to ask her questions because everybody that I see try, except for the people that, that she surrounds herself with, with love, everybody else, including Walter, who is on her side, just gets rinsed on a very regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. I think I, I, I can agree with you on that. It's interesting though, because so many women have said to me, boy, this is someone I would want to meet or have over for dinner. And I, I think, you know, in a way she speaks for a lot of women, but my intent was for her to speak also for men, because I think that society has created so many rules for men that are so unfair and that has driven a lot of behavior that I think plenty of men don't feel comfortable with. And I think that, you know, she can stand up for everyone and say, we're not just men and women, we're not just these genders, we're people. We are just people. And if we can start seeing it that way, there's a, you know, as you notice, there's a theme throughout the book about lying and deception and how people position themselves with other people and the stories we tell ourselves and things like that. And Elizabeth isn't very much of a storyteller. So to write as a storyteller to a non-storyteller was, was one of the challenges. But it was also, even I, when I was writing her, was saying, wow, do you really want to say that? And honestly, you know, I felt like she was sitting next to me saying, oh, yeah. I'm going to say this. You know, she's just not afraid. And I think that is the other thing. She's subversive. She's transgressive. And she that appeals to a lot of people because all of us tamp ourselves down in some respect. Well, not all of us. Most, most of us. Most of us. I, I would completely <laughs> agree. Chapter two, a one sitting meal. Lessons in Chemistry is a book that can be devoured in a single sitting. And according to my producer, Ollie, the edit can also be completed in a single sitting too. Clearly, Bonnie has a way with words both on the page and off. It took me about four hours to read the whole thing, and I would have happily spent more time with it. But for a writer, particularly a debutante, their books and their characters may have been with them for many years. So is this true of Bonnie? And what has the writing process been like for her? Well, Elizabeth Zopp actually was a character in a different book that I'd started uh, even before this one. And she was a very minor character. I didn't finish that book. I shelved it. But it was Elizabeth Zopp, just this little piece of her I kept going back to and remembering. And then that day, you know, you get angry. You can, you can do a lot of things with anger. And I think to, to channel it in a positive direction was probably the smartest thing I ever did. But she was just in the back of my mind. And that day when I went back to my desk, I felt like she was sitting right beside me. And she was saying, no, no, no. You know, you think that you have these problems in society and with sexism or misogyny or racism or let me tell you about them. You know, you need to you need to get a grip here and realize that that change has happened and you must acknowledge it and then you must move forward. But how long she had been with me? Gosh, so that would be 15 years in the back of my head. And then it took me about 
I can never remember now, like five to seven years to write the book. I was working full time and I just felt like, I don't know how these other writers do it. They can work full time and write books on the side. I am, I, my hat is odd to them, but that is not me. I need to focus completely when I write. And so I wrote her on the side. I also wrote another novel. So, you know, I've been writing, but I am a huge rewriter. So everything you see in that book, I cut at least five times that much. I think for me, the novel is always in the rewrite. And I really appreciate you saying that you could sit down and read it in one sitting, but you're right. I didn't write it in one sitting, but I will say that the characters, I didn't know who all the characters were going to be. And they came to me one by one and said, let me tell you about Elizabeth Zott. And that's why there are so many points of view, because I thought she needed to be well-rounded by all these people. We needed to see every side of her from all these people to begin to understand what created her and why she was so driven and why she could be the catalyst, what she had overcome. It's the notion of, of what you said on working full time and then and then writing on the side. I I withheld this information publicly for a very long period of time. And then when I eventually left the day job to do creative endeavors full time, one of the things I said that really resonated with people who had previously asked me, how did you ever find the time to do your writing? And I thought about whether I should admit to this. And, and eventually I did. And I said, I didn't find the time to write. I found the time to go to work. And it was a complete reframing of the narrative. And to me, that felt like perfect sense. And for a while after not being in the office, I was kind of crippled with anxiety a bit because I suddenly had all of this time to fill, you know, whereas, you know, if you work full time, you come home in the evening, you've got things to do at home and then you've got to find the time to write for a couple of hours. Well, when that's all the time you have, then you can be super diligent and super focused. But when suddenly you're faced with an entire day, it, it it can be quite hard. I got to the end and I read this. It says... Her debut novel, Lessons in Chemistry, will be published in 32 languages and is being made into an Apple TV limited series starring Brie Larson. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary final beat of a 385-page novel. When, during the process, did the television series conversations start and how much have you been involved in that? Well, so the surprising thing is, for me, now we're up to 37 territories the conversations started, so we were at Frankfurt Book Fair, or I wasn't, but anyway, we were COVID, but the negotiations with Europe started with the UK. And from there, just a few days later, the US auction began. And then right in the middle of the US auction, my agent, Felicity Blunt, called me and she said, oh, there's been some interest from Hollywood. And I thought she was kidding, you know, because (laughs) we kid a lot. And I went, "Uh uh-huh. And she goes, no, no, seriously. And I said to her, how could they possibly have the book? And she said, it's called Scouting Bonnie. <laughs> you know, uh, there's just this, <laughs> this, this naive part on, the, you know, on my part of the writer of how, how is this all working? How is this all done? But sure enough, they had it. And um, we waited until the U.S. auction was over and I could catch my breath because that was also very exhausting to choose between these incredible people in publishing. It was, it was like that book, Sophie's Choice. I, never want to have those kind of choices again. It was really hard for me to figure out where to go, but I had two great agents guiding me and that was very helpful. 
But then, yeah, Hollywood called and, um, and Felicity said, now you have a film agent and here's his email. You know, I thought, oh, you know, is this how, really, is this how it works? And, uh, and then he That's called literally he, how it works. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he called and he said, so we've got a lot of interest, you know, we've gotten, uh, I can't remember how many people had expressed interest, but I think it was, I want to say 35 different companies, but anyway, we narrowed it down to eight. And from there I got on zoom and I was talking to these incredible people, you know, it, it was, it was daunting. It was the Games of Thrones people, the Mad Men people, that you know, the the people who had done uh, the writer who wrote Aaron Brockovich, you know, who's working on my piece now. I, the people that I talked to so astonished me with not only their their intelligence, their kindness, but their enthusiasm for the book that it was such a an immense pleasure to do that part of it, but it was also really scary. Also, it was all at night because they're in Hollywood, and I'm in London. And I go to bed pretty early because I get up really early and I was like, oh, it's nine o'clock and I have this Zoom call. But no, that's how it happened. Um, it was just boom, 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 boom. And the deal became that it couldn't just be an option buy. It had to be a must produce buy, which puts a lot of more a lot more pressure on the studios because I think options are fairly common with a book, but a must produce is not common. And so then we got to that part of it. And um then we ended up settling. Well, I I went with Aggregate Films, which is Michael Costigan and Jason Bateman. Brie Larson had asked for an exclusive read. And then she and I got together on Zoom. And that was really fun. I mean, she's just so nice and so normal. And the minute I saw her, she was just like, yeah, you know, this will be really fun. And I don't, it was just sort of a very natural connection. I thought, oh yeah, she can be Elizabeth Zott. I can, I can see it in her. So that was tremendous. And then they started taking it to the next step, which is to find the people who are going to stream it, whether it's Netflix or Hulu. And Apple TV was just incredible. And um, that's who they went with. And I couldn't be more thrilled, to be honest. Chapter three, not a talking dog. My favourite perspective in the book is that of the dog, whose name is 6.30, named so because that's the time he came into Elizabeth Zott's life. When she teaches him words, they're not conventional words that you'd associate with a dog, like sit, stay and stand. They're complex words that would be tough for a dog to understand, or so we think. What Bonnie has done through the character of the dog is expand the notion of what is possible. Why couldn't a dog learn this? In so many ways, the dog furthers the very matter-of-fact personality of Elizabeth Zott, but its presence goes far beyond that of a minor character. The dog sees the world through a very unique perspective. It's not speaking, but rather it's thinking, experiencing, and existing. Portraying it correctly in the television series, then, is going to be a tall order. So how did the character of the dog come about? I had a dog named Friday who seemed really exceptional in terms of intelligence. And I've had a lot of dogs in my life and we've, we've certainly fostered a lot of rescue dogs, but we had this one dog Friday who just seemed to know she could learn so quickly and she'd been very badly abused. So when we took her on, we thought, Oh, why did we do this? And then she turned out to be this incredibly intelligent, quick thinking, protective dog. She was very protective of the kids, my kids and the family. And she was just, she had so much insight 
And that's where it really came from, from that dark Friday, that I thought she had unusual insight. But you know, it's so funny, humans are funny because we think, well, animals, other animals, we forget we're animals, other animals can't possibly be as intelligent as we are. But then you see my octopus teacher, and then you see, you read a book that trees talk to each other. And then you find out that whales have this complex, you know, thing going on. There are all these things. It's just that we haven't gotten there yet. It's just that the science hasn't moved forward yet. Also, we can't always look as, at intelligence in our own terms. Animals have their different terms for intelligence. And that's what I wanted to bring out in 630. He's asking us to consider that we're, we're not the be all end all. You know, we all belong on the earth together. And um, I really, I, I don't know, I probably should have been an animal behaviorist or something. But that's where he came from. As for his thinking, yes, I did not want him to be a talking dog. And I don't think that that would have been, I don't think it would have worked. It would have been kind of irritating. I have no idea how they're going to handle this in the series, by the way. But I, I do think I wanted him to communicate a lot of things. And one of the things I wanted to show with him was that, you know, when the very first time he places his head on Elizabeth's stomach when she's pregnant and he starts talking to the creature and he calls the daughter, Madeline, creature throughout the whole book. And there's a reason for that. Creature is usually a derogatory term, but for 6.30, it's just the opposite. A creature is someone that is, you know, kind of unformed almost. And he continues, they have the silent communication between each other. And I really think Matt is a, is a complex character, but her wisdom, it's coming from 6.30. She's tapped into that world, just like these trees are communicating with each other through roots. She made it to the other side. And it, I didn't want to, you know, flog that and make sure everyone saw it. But it was one of my goals that she would be this child that could understand what it was he was saying to her and vice versa. This came up in, a, in the previous series of this show with an author called Sumana Roy who wrote a book called How I Became a Tree and it is about our relationship with with nature I'm fascinated by this because when I think it's Madeline when Madeline actually quotes the but humans are animals too that gets a very strong reaction from from the teachers with whom she is always in trouble which you know she is she is essentially her mother's daughter, isn't yeah. she? Um, yes, yeah. And, and the reason I keep talking about the dog is because my favourite line in the entire book is an internal thought by 6.30, who is reflecting on the fact that he has just discovered that humans speak more than one language. And he has concluded that no damn wonder they can't understand each other, which is <laughs> yeah. just so beautifully observed that that I, I, I really want that to be in the show. And I'm, I'm pretty certain that would be the first thing to go. Yeah, probably, probably. Yeah, you know, it occurred to me, we moved abroad with Friday to Switzerland. We were transferred there. And I don't know, within six months or so, Friday understood German. It occurred to me, all these dogs all over the world, they, they listen to the language that they hear and they kind of speak that language. So dogs are quite capable of, of learning these different things. But I had no idea, you know, our dog was, was running away and it in the forest and I called her back, but instead of saying, you know, come here Friday, I said, uh, Friday, uh, we called her Freitag there even. We were, she came back and then I said, Setsensi. And she sat, you know, right right down next to me. I thought, oh my God, the other dogs have taught her German. You know, I, I, I just, anyway, I'm, I'm always fascinated by 
animals and what's really going on and, and how we need to look at them in a certain way instead of just from our version of intelligence. Yes, completely. So we are on the cusp of publication of Lessons in Chemistry. Yes. It's out next month. Yeah. And I feel a bit nervous about asking you this question because of the fact that it's not even out yet. And, you know, you quite obviously deserve a bit of a break because I'm sure you've been doing lots of press. But what happens next? This will be out. People will say things about it. You will like some of them. You won't like all of them. That's, okay. That's what happens. But yeah. in terms of this project, Elizabeth saw is done out. The TV show will happen. Was your deal um, a one book deal or a two book deal? And if, if it was the latter, are you desperately behind? I mean, you know, obviously you never tell your agent <laughs> the truth, but how are you getting on with your other deadlines? I had I had dinner with my agent last night. Yeah, yeah I'm working on it. I'm um, working on it. <laughs> It's a, it was a one book deal. Thank God. I had no idea how lucky I was when she suggested that. Uh, and I thought, oh, I thought two book deals were better or whatever. You know, it, it implied some sort of faith in the writer. But she goes, no, one book deal. And thank God. But yes, I am working on something else, something I'm very enthusiastic about. And I explain it, but I can't even explain lessons in chemistry. You've done a far better job than I have. So, you know, I'm I'm excited about it. But It'll be a while until I can really get to it. And as you said, you know, sit by yourself in a room and go, why did I not want to be working while I was working on this novel and have some other distraction? Because being alone in front of your computer and just having that, that's pretty awful. Well, I I will leave you then to your solitude and your one book deal <laughs> joy, because I know exactly what you mean. Congratulations on the one book deal, by oh, the way. Thank that, you that so door much. Is the way. And congratulations, more importantly, on Lessons in Chemistry. It is an incredibly assured debut. I feel that the word debut doesn't do you and any of the other double day debutants justice because of how assured I felt in your hands the character of elizabeth and all of the other characters are so incredibly well drawn it is a one sitting meal and you should consume it once you've got your hands on it in a single sitting and there is a tribute from nigella lawson on the back of the copy that i have which just said that she was absolutely devastated when she finished it and i know exactly what she means by that because i feel like i wanted to spend more time in Elizabeth's company but I'm also pretty sure that Elizabeth would have said I think you've had enough of me now it's time for you to it's time for you to, to move on many well, congratulations you thank you thank you so much thank you so much um for coming on Bonnie it's been an absolute pleasure Lessons in Chemistry is out in April 2022 you should read it you will love it Bonnie Garmus thank you very much thank you Mark Conclusion, a massive thank you then to Bonnie Garmus for today's episode. And to recap, what have we learnt? Don't let a bad mood eat you up inside. Channel that inner anger and allow your writing to serve as a cathartic outlet. Turn your fury into something positive. This can be especially powerful when you want your writing to challenge a societal issue. The novel is often in the rewrite. Don't plan on getting your book word perfect the first time round. The narrative might be a little disjointed. The characters may not be perfectly fleshed out, but the important thing is getting the words down. You can always go back and edit hundreds of times if you have to, but you do need something to work with first. As we've said before, the first draft is never right, so don't waste time getting it wrong. 
Without needing to venture into the supernatural, Bonnie managed to portray the character of the dog in a fascinating and unique way, challenge what is conventionally thought of as possible. Why can't a dog have complex thoughts and learn complex words? Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. Let me know what lesson you've taken away from this week's episode by sending an email to info at behindthespine.co.uk. We're also on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine and Instagram as at Behind the Spine Podcast. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. 